0: Allah
1: Voice of Islam Radio Peace be upon you all This is the Voice of Islam Radio You're listening to The Drive Time Show And I'm pretty sure You already know that We are now currently live For the next two hours We're going to be exploring Two very important topics and we're going to have a plethora of live expert callers this time that's right so stay tuned for that like i said this show is live so we want to hear from you at home and the way you can do that is number one you can call in 02086877878 is the number to call if you feel like you've got something to say on the two topics that we're going to be discussing today but you can also get in touch through social media platforms twitter and Instagram at uh, Voice of Islam UK. Post to us. Tweet to us at us I don't think we, they don't They don't even call it tweet anymore that's, yeah, I think it's called posting let's, let's keep it is like it that okay? yes that's, that's mm-hmm. correct so if you want to have your say these are the very easy ways that you can get in touch with us and actually speaking of social media we're going to jump straight to our first topic which is defence spending military spending is it a good idea mm-hmm. or have we gone too far we're going to delve into this very shortly but before we do Imran like I said mm-hmm our viewers can get in touch with us through social media and they kind of already have haven't mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. with the poll that we set out for them absolutely
2: i mean uh, in the second hour we'll have um, uh, a topic uh, called lingualism mm-hmm. knowing uh, more than one languages so we all ask uh, the question uh, to our um, uh, to our um, um, you know uh, listeners that what language uh, do you want to learn and um five of them said Arabic. Oh really? So, yeah, okay. five of them are Arabic. So for for example, Ahmadi Wibes, um uh, uh, she said Farsi, uh Zainab said Persian. Okay. Um, and uh, wow. Nabas said um, Arabic, uh, Aisha said Arabic, Navira said Arabic, um Fiza said, said Spanish and some said English as well. So uh, five of them are said in, um, Arabic. Wow. So I think, um, I think because of uh, the Muslim background, you want to learn Arabic, to understand the right. Quran, and right. Hadith. So, so it's a quite interesting. It's time. good yeah. to see yeah. that
1: we've got some engagement going on on social yeah. media platforms. And like I said, we'd encourage you to do the same thing. Of course, that poll is for the second segment, so get ready for that. But yeah. for this sh- part of the hour where we talk about defense spending, we want you to do the same thing and let us know exactly what you think. Right, Imran, we're going to have <laughs> a few experts coming on very soon, but we need to get a kind of grip with what's going on in the world. Um, I was looking at this very briefly mm-hmm. and defence spending if you want to call mm-hmm. it that mm-hmm. last year the world spent over 2 trillion dollars on uh, various kinds of defence spending which is quite crazy, oh. quite a lot of money 2 trillion? Yes oh, goodness. and uh, Imran, what is going on?
2: I think um, unfortunately uh, you know, uh, in the world we're living today uh, they're not spending on the things which they should, for example you know, health and education, okay. and we are just you <laughs> spending hmm. on the things, uh, on the war, war, out of which we are not going to get anywhere. So okay. For example, uh, you know, due to um, growing global tension, military expenditure worldwide increased 3.7 percent in last year, and according to research, uh, since 2008. Britain has sent uh, military equipment okay. worth <clears throat> 1.5 billion mm. pound
0: well,
2: to to 40 countries, around 40 countries. Right, and uh, you know this is this is the state of the world. I mean,
1: okay, so we've got this spending going on. We're not we're not exactly sure yet exactly what is being spent on. I'm sure we're going to mm-hmm. find out soon. It could be weapons. It could be experts. It could be safeguarding of the weapons. Many different things that come to play here. But surely, Imran, I get where you're coming from. You're mm. you're trying to say that we should spend Mm. more money on healthcare on our children on education on infrastructure I get all of that right but doesn't there need to be some kind of military spending uh, you know in the first place isn't national security important isn't defending yourself against tyranny and ensuring that other people and other powers and countries don't misuse the weapons they have isn't all of this correctly quite rightly justified as correct defense spending
2: I mean uh, to some extent this is, I think it's uh, important okay. to 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 spend on military uh, and defense uh, you know uh, um, you have some some sort of military and defense budget but uh, if you compare, for example, uh, I was I was um, looking at stat on on Pakistan, for example, four mm. percent of its GDP they they spend on military and defense. Okay. And only two oh, percent. really? On only two percent on health and education. Wow.
1: And the Pakistan is one of the you know poorest countries. So in the I, I guess what you're trying to say is there needs to be a correct, fair submission yeah. of funds to to whatever is required, and you feel like. Things like healthcare and education are probably more important. Absolutely. Let me know, guys who are listening, what you think, because this is a I'm sure this is going to be a question that's going to divide the groups. Is military spending important? Mm-hmm. And how much should we be spending on it if we should be spending on it at all? Absolutely. This is the question we want to let, let us know 0208-687-7878 or tweet to us mm-hmm. on Twitter or post to us at Instagram. Of course, this is the voice of Islam radio. So we are always going to try and figure out what is the Islamic approach and the Islamic mindset when it comes to these issues. And today with defense spending, we need to look no further Mm -hmm. than the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community who's actually for a while now Mm -hmm. been speaking about military expenditures, Mm -hmm. the nuclear threats. Imran, what's he been saying?
2: Yeah, so in um, 2017, the Caliph, the worldwide head of Ahmadiyya Muslim community talked about arms trade at the annual peace symposium. Mm. So, um, he said that, in my opinion, there is uh, one one uh, ready-made solution that can have an instant impact and begin the process of healing the world. He said that, I refer to the international armed trade which I believe has to be uh, carved and restricted. Then he continued to state that whilst the primary interest of every nation should be the well-being of mankind hmm. and achieving peace. So this is, uh, he's saying hmm. that uh, the primary object of every country should be uh, the interest of, it, of uh, its subjects and, you know, well-being of mankind. And then he said that it is a sad truth that business uh, interest and the pursuit of wealth, uh, you know, invertibly taken priority over such concern. So uh, the government have the responsibility to look after its subjects in every manner, uh, whether Mm. it's regards to health, whether it's regards to poverty, whether it's regards to education. But unfortunately, we see in this world that we are spending much more on military and defence as compared to, you know. This is is
1: quite interesting. I mean, If we look back to the time of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, Mm. there were military expeditions. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of effort put into defence. I wouldn't say it was trillions or even billions or millions, but there was nevertheless an existent force. And when I looked into this whole argument of should there be defence spending, there are obviously the advocates and those who feel not so strongly obliged to this idea. And those who are advocates obviously are saying that number one, this is first and foremost... You would imagine The first argument They would normally present Is it's a defence strategy Mm -hmm. It's going to protect us This is actually The number two argument Mm -hmm. The number one argument uh, This is a great source Of economic income Right And we already know this Because military arms are very expensive. We're talking about $2 trillion there. You know, countries spending billions at a time. I think the UK mm. spent somewhere around $435 billion or something like that recently. Mm. It's a lot of money that mm. goes into this arms trade. So if it's a country that's dealing with it and they're benefiting from that, that is definitely something that they would True. hope to, to continue. Mm. What can be wrong with that? What can be right with that? Obviously, we'll look into this. Yeah. But this is the proponent that they they yeah. try to push.
2: Just, just uh, I have one stat which I've, I think stated previously is that Britain has sent military equipment worth 1.5 billion pound to 40 states, hmm. most you know susceptible to climate change as well. Ah, a move yes. that could exacerbate both armed conflict and the worldwide
1: yeah. you know, environmental. I trucks. mean, it's really interesting. Yeah. There is there's a lot of debates about. The economic side of it versus the defence, so-called, quote-unquote, defence side of it versus the environmental impacts it also has. We're going to be looking into this shortly, but right now, we do have with us our very first expert on this topic, and that is Dr. Sam Perlow-Freeman. And we're going to be talking to him very shortly. He is a research coordinator at the Campaign Against Arms Trade Movement, a UK-based organisation that works towards ending... Ending international arms trade. Dr. Sam Perlo Freeman, welcome to the show and assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. How are you doing today?
3: I'm not too bad, thanks.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Sam Perlo Freeman. We obviously are talking about defence spending, as many would call it. And like we've just we've just kind of touched upon it and we're trying to figure out (laughs) what are the pros and cons of this thing. Some people may argue that. Defence is absolutely necessary, and the funds that are being spent on it are absolutely justified. Whereas, I'm sure with yourselves as well, there are those who feel different to that. But before we go into this, we did introduce that you are with the Campaign Against Arms Trade Organisation. Could you tell us a little bit about what they do and what the objectives are? Yes, well,
3: we we do basically what it says on the label. (laughs) Uh, we, We campaign against the arms trade. Uh, We we specifically focus primarily on UK arms exports because we are a UK-based organisation. And we we concentrate on sales to to, um, destinations of countries that are involved in conflict or where there are repressive regimes, uh, where the arms are supporting uh, dictatorships, where there is corruption uh and and so forth um but we are ultimately we want to see the arms trade in general around the world brought hmm. to to an end whoever okay. the exporter and we want to see those countries that produce arms right moving in the other direction disarming demilitarizing okay. and moving towards a world where security is not based on uh on the
2: threat and mm-hmm. use of, of, of massive force and killing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, d- Dr. Sam. Um, so um, you know we're talking about the um, uh, military, you know, um, budget. And um, I was reading a stat that uh, um, Britain has sent uh, military qu- equipment worth 1.5 billion pound to 40 nations. So. Um, you know, the arm industry currently are the profiteers from war and global tension. What about its victim? And can you elaborate on the wider impact of arm trade? Mm-hmm.
3: Yes. Uh, so exactly how much the global arms trade is, is worth uh, in terms of international arms transfers, it's hard to say, but very probably over $100 billion. Um, the UK's share, again, is not very transparent, but In recent years it's averaged about 8.6 billion pounds a year um so of course many of the wars that are being fought around the world depend on arms bought from overseas okay if we look at the saudi-led war in yemen uh and 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 of course the, the fighting on the ground between the parties that depends um on arms from overseas um Saudi Arabia uh, receives Mm -hmm. arms from from the US the UK, France, many others Israel has a very advanced arms industry of its own but for its attacks on the Palestinians it also depends very heavily on uh, fighter jets and bombs and missiles from the United States Um, if we look at some of the conflicts uh, around the world say Myanmar where there's been genocide going on It's Hmm. not the West arming them, it's more Russia and China, a bit from India, Israel as well has been in on the act there. So, in in so many parts of the world, uh, the conflicts that are going on would not be possible without armed supplies from overseas. It's uh, legal or illegal or both. Overwhelmingly, civilians that are killed in these conflicts.
1: Right, Dr Sam, I mean, obviously what you're saying Makes a lot of sense to me. I'm trying to figure out, okay, there's a lot of conflicts that are going on. We don't want it to be in the way that they are, in the shape that they've, mm. they, that they've attributed themselves to become. But from those, the points of view of those who try to justify or advocate for mm. large amounts of defense spending, perhaps they're not necessarily justifying such conflicts, but they are saying that there is a need number one for economic income of a country for arms trade to take place or because generally it will increase national security or it would, um, you know, an increased amount of arms or weapon spending for ourselves would mean that we can greater control other tyrannical powers. Generally, what would you have to say to this kind of approach? Mm.
3: Well, um, arms... actually bring very little into the economy Okay, uh, they're, they're, they're less than uh, in the UK they're less than half percent of GDP oh wow now in terms of a country's own military spending countries do have a right to defend themselves hmm. Um, hmm. so uh, you, you, you know we're not saying that Britain or uh, countries should just immediately abolish their armies <laughs> overnight um, Right. But we, um, we do think that the world spends far too much on the military. Right. Hmm.
0: Uh,
3: last year, according to Cypriot, it was $2.2 trillion in oh, wow. total. Right. That so many countries, world powers, whether it's US, Russia, China, Britain, France, are basing their security, basing their approach to the world on the assumption that Security comes from massive military power, right and this has led to a global arms race. The hmm, US hmm. and China in an arm, are in an arms race, which everyone—the big worry is—will this eventually lead to war between the two? Okay. The, um, the 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 US spends so well over eight hundred billion dollars a year uh, on the military, by far the, the, the biggest. And in, with, with the UK fully cooperating, it's used this to launch aggressive wars hmm. around the world, which have proved disastrous, first of all, for the people of those countries, Iraq and Afghanistan, but also um, for, for, for the United States and for Britain as well. Okay. Um, so we believe that this focus on militarism as the way that countries seek security seek right. to uh further their interests in the world is disastrous hmm. and reversing that cannot be just about one country Absolutely. on its own deciding that they're they're, hmm. they're not going to spend anything more <laughs> yeah. on the military but it um but we do think things need to move in the other direction okay. uh, and hmm. uh, and uh, and that has to happen both by the biggest countries producing spending individually and by you you know negotiations
1: and mutual reduction I mean so Dr. Sam what what I kind of understand from this is it almost seems like everybody's panic buying like everybody else is doing it we need to do it too otherwise we're going to fall behind and like you quite rightly said I think with the situation that currently exists where it wouldn't really make sense for one country just, just to go like, oh, you know what, I'm just going to ignore everybody else buying it and just stop buying them myself. It has to be an effort that needs to be undertaken through negotiations uh, from an international perspective. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't seem like that some country would want to take this initiative by themselves. Maybe it wouldn't even be fair. So, yes, you're right that this needs to be done with the cooperation mm of all the major powers and it needs to begin with them so that's absolutely correct uh, and now I, I think I'm beginning to understand mm-hmm. the bigger picture of what's going on
2: yeah so yeah Dr. Sam you know the arm trade so what do we know about whose hands UK arms you know end up and in the you know havoc they are uh, causing around the world and what is the impact of UK arms contributing to conflict and the climate crisis on, around the world hmm
3: so, for quite a long time, that by far the UK's biggest customer for arms has been Saudi Arabia, uh, including typhoon and uh, tornado combat aircraft, uh, a wide range of bombs and missiles to go with those aircraft, and, and much more, and all the ongoing servicing and support of these aircraft to keep them flying. And along with similar supplies from the U.S., this has been absolutely crucial in Saudi Arabia conducting its brutal war on Yemen over the past uh, eight eight years. Uh, Thankfully, currently in a sort of something of a truce, but there's no guarantee that will continue. At the end of 2021, the U.N. estimated that... um, 377,000 people in Yemen uh, would have died uh, directly and indirectly as a response, uh, as a result of the war. And Ah. Saudi Arabia itself has killed nearly 9,000 civilians directly in targeted attacks on marketplaces, hospitals, residential areas, and other civilian targets. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the most. Obvious and egregious example of where UK arms have been causing mm-hmm. horrendous death and destruction in conflict. But there are others. Um, it's sort of often less obvious because it's often components. So, for example, Tristia uh, is a significant UK arms customer mm-hmm. and um, they're involved in wars against their own. Um, Kurdish population and across the border in Syria and Iraq um, but we've also found that UK component technology ended up a crucial piece of technology ended up in Turkish drones the tv 2 Bayraktar drones mm-hmm. and they've been exported all around the world they're proving a great success for Turkey, um including many many conflicts in Uh, Azerbaijan um, versus Armenia in Ethiopia in in their war on Tigray in Libya in the in the civil war there and and, and several others they seem Mm -hmm. to have very few limits of any in who they'll sell to so that's a sort of less dramatic and and less obvious example than than Saudi Arabia in Yemen but it's another case where UK arms Are contributing to uh, horrendous conflicts.
2: Okay, okay.
1: Right, so now we kind of. I think have a very good picture of what's going on in the UK and how we're going to try to approach this is going to have to be international negotiation communication Dr. Sam very thank you very much for coming on to the show today to give us that insight uh, we're going to now move on and try to you know figure this out and see where this goes thank you very much and we do thank hope to speak to you again Bye. Good, goodbye thank you very much peace be upon you that was Dr. Sam Polo Freeman like we said is a part of the organisation called the Campaign Against Armed Trading he is a a research coordinator for that and we like have very well you know very well we've learned uh, sorry I had a bit of a tongue tie there we've learned very well that there is a problem Mm -hmm. and there is a lot of spending going on and sometimes this spending actually results in a lot of unjust warfare Mm -hmm. a lot of spending which can go sometimes untracked and it's organizations like these who are trying their best to call out the major powers to come to some kind of understanding where we can come to a negotiation of agreement between countries around the world because this isn't going to be done by one country this isn't going to be disarmament for example won't be achieved by a single country it has to be done together having said that mm-hmm. we do have a caller on the line with us we're going to be having a number of callers today we do mm-hmm. have Mister, I think it's Salim Rahman on the call. Assalamu alaikum wa be upon you. How are you doing? Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yes, alhamdulillah, fine. Thank you very
4: much.
1: Yes, so we uh, of course are talking about defense spending right now and whether it's a good idea or whether it's something that's gone a bit too far. What do you think?
4: Definitely gone a bit too far.
1: Okay. So, Why is um, that?
4: So, what is ultimately all I think on this particular subject is <coughs> education is needed. Mm-hmm. People in the decision seat, they need to realise, and this is my thinking. I actually mentioned this to uh, the Chief Government Scientific Advisor at the event I went to. All right. The end goal of defence is violence. Okay. That's my point of view. Number okay. one. So the you don't do think?
1: Okay. Fun. You don't think there's any kind of good outcome to this? No. Okay. So, hmm. What would you say to those... uh, I mean, first of all, are are you completely against defence spending at all? Or do you believe that there is some kind of need for military power to exist within your own country and also around the world?
4: No military power is needed around the
1: world. Mm -hmm. So how so what would be your proposal uh, at the moment like like we just heard from dr sam that a lot of countries are seeing this defense spending as a means and a route for their national security whether that's a large spend or a small spend whether that means weapons or aircraft or military or having border security whatever it means how would you propose an alternative strategy to that
4: that thing I'll have to i have to think about that, ultimately ultimately, education and the way forward for societies for countries is not through defence hmm. spending. Okay, definitely
1: not through that. Yeah, well, we, we we I think even Iran on the call earlier was saying that you know there was a was it Pakistan I think hmm. spending double the amount on their defence spending okay. as opposed to their education, for example. Of course, this is something which would be quite alarming. But at the same time, I think that. Education is important, but it's it's a separate entity altogether to defence and to military, just like we have healthcare. It's a completely separate sector. And the question that I think would still remain out there with many of the advocates of defence spending is that at the minimum, there is going to be some need, even if it's just kind of border control, if it's surveillance, if it's intelligence, these kinds of things Mm -hmm. would be deemed to be very important in a nation. But that's, you know, that's the debate that we're trying to figure out now. Um, Salim, anything else that you would like to share? ultimately that's it
4: I just pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables the decision makers to make sense that defense spending is not the way forward for harmony society mm-hmm. and uh, for friendly relations they have to actually think, rethink their model that's all I okay. mm-hmm.
1: very much appreciated for your time thank you very much for coming on to the show and sharing your views yes. we really really appreciate that Jazakallah assalamu mm-hmm. uh, alaykum wa rahmatullah and peace be upon you and we hope to have a chat with you again sometime soon That was um, Salim Rahman, who came on to Mm -hmm. give his views about defence spending. Now, Imran, Mm -hmm. you're an imam. Yeah. So I'm going to come to you about this, Mm -hmm. because he did say that kind of defence spending isn't really the best Islamic approach. We have already spoken about some of the uh, the words of some of the Islamic world leaders. What else do you have on this?
2: I mean, um, you know, uh, as we're talking uh, talking about, you know, uh, defence spending, and if we talk about specifically on, uh, you know, Islamic view on war, so, um, you know... In, in the history of Islam, Muslims were, you know, given the right to defence themselves and to ensure uh, that, you know, synagogues, mos- mosques were not destroyed. So um, Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran that permission to fight is granted to those against whom war is made because they have been wronged and Allah is indeed has the power to help them. They are those who have been driven out of their homes unjustly only because they, you know, affirmed our Lord is Allah. If Allah did not repel the aggression of some people by means of others, churches, clusters and synagogues and mosques, therein the name of Allah is oft commemorated, commemorated would surely be destroyed. So in, in this verse, Allah is saying that you are allowed to defend yourself. It, it, it doesn't mean that, you know, you don't, you don't defend yourself. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um uh, uh, taking the initial uh, you know starting war right. or you know going after other countries okay. just, just to take their resources
1: okay. it's not allowed in Islam but okay. you can
2: defend okay. this was well,
1: that's really good to know that's the Islamic standpoint we're now going to go to our next expert to figure this out on a practical level what exactly are we supposed to do we have David Swanson on the line with us As-salamu wa peace be upon you David how are you doing today? Uh,
5: same to you thank you very much
1: perfect so just to let everybody know david is actually the executive director of world beyond war a global non-violent movement to end war and this sounds like a very important um, objective here we're going to be talking to you a little bit about this why david did you actually found this movement world beyond war i mean what exactly i know it's pretty obvious by the name Mm -hmm. but could you tell us exactly what was the inspiration behind why you began this
5: well, a lot of us were a little tired of trying to stop a particular weapon or a particular war or working with attitudes and uh, worldviews that opposed just particular wars or wars by the right. uh, of particular political parties and so forth. We wanted an organization that would oppose all wars, all militaries, all weapons build up, all militarization everywhere. And that would be global wouldn't be uh, an organization based in a particular part of the world right that would be global
1: that's right okay
6: education
1: and wow i mean we've, we've already spoken to dr sam we've kind of already come to this conclusion that you know this isn't going to be something that one country can just get up and be like "Yo, yep, i've got the solution to this let's do it it has to be something a global effort yeah so so uh, david and uh, uh,
2: david and. Um, How do you view the risk of escalation with growing global tensions like, you know, currently uh, we have a war between uh, Russia and Ukraine and nations investing significantly more into their military than before?
5: The war in Ukraine has been the worst thing for demilitarization. We're seeing a dramatic increase in military buildup all over the world. And the greatest risk of nuclear apocalypse, according to many experts, according to the scientists, keep the doomsday clock, uh, not to mention a nuclear power plant at grave risk as it has no engineers working at it there in Ukraine, uh, and the disruption of, of grain shipments and the disruption of global cooperation on any of the non-optional crises like the climate and homelessness and poverty, uh, it, it, it is A a war that can end only in compromise or nuclear apocalypse, and you have both sides defining compromise as freedom. So how does it?
1: (laughs) That's that's a really interesting point. Compromise as freedom, and I think you're speaking a lot about, and we've heard a lot about so Mm -hmm. far about the kind of on-ground consequences of defence spending. I think when most people think about that, they think about death, they think about Mm. annihilation, they think about wars that shouldn't be happening, that are just basically going to end in even more death. But one aspect that perhaps people don't think about is the environmental impact, David. Perhaps the pollution that takes place and the things that happen with regards to that. Could you tell us a little bit, bit about what kind of consequences we're talking about here?
5: Well, I can't tell you the environmental consequences of defense spending, because I'm not aware of any defense spending, but military spending, mm-hmm. uh, war spending, uh, <laughs> is one of the major to <laughs> environmental destruction uh, around the world, uh, and the the carbon emission of the world's militaries would make those militaries number four in a list of countries, taking the entire carbon emissions of, of countries one hmm. by one. Uh, it's a major contributor, uh, and yet it's given a waiver. It's left out of the right. Kyoto agreements and the wow. Agreement, and as if the military have some other planet to destroy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. This is uh, quite shocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this is the scale of how things have escalated, yeah. and you're able to get away with it. And David, it's quite interesting that actually you also differentiated there a little bit between defense spending and military spending. Of course, there is a difference. How do you think countries justify that though, uh, where they have a budget and they would justify something to be defense spending, and perhaps others view as a, others might view it as not so. Uh, when it comes to military spending, the same thing.
5: Well, they all call it defense. The the War Department in the United States was renamed the Defense Department in 1947. And most countries have done this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And mm -hmm. most wars have both sides claiming to be doing defense. (laughs) defense
1: So, So do you believe in defense? Basically, do you think there is such a thing as a need for a defense? Or is this all military strategy to just try and buy more weapons and destroy the other?
5: Uh, given that i have like 10 seconds to answer i can go along with the notion of military defense and scale back get rid of 95% mm-hmm. of the military and okay. just have extra borders and see where we can go further from there but my my actual
1: answer
2: is a bit longer
1: <laughs> as as we would imagine but yes so,
2: so david is there any justification for the us large you know military budget or you can say uh, defense budget if it was up to you what would you like to see your government invest that money instead
5: well, given that three percent of just the US military budget could end starvation on Earth. Wow given the incredible wonders that could be worked with small fractions of military spending, at least with the countries like the United States that you know, the United States spends almost as much as everybody else put together. Wow. Uh <laughs>
0: it
5: incredible wonders. You could do more good. You see China making loans and the US putting in bases and weapons, and which actually works better at, at winning people mm. over to your cause. I,
1: I this think is correct. Okay. Not- wow, David. I mean, that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, uh, we, you know, we here at The Voice of Islam, we've got a motto, which is win the hearts. Mm-hmm. And I think this has kind of just reminded me that, yeah, you got all this money, and if you really want to win people over, it's not going to be done through <laughs> spending military, well... Well, not spending, but you doing military bombardment, and this is really important. So, I think David, you mentioned that three percent of that could solve. What was it? Poverty, or was this was it hunger?
5: No, just starvation. To to okay. to get rid of hunger, even entirely then,
1: would take a few mm-hmm. more. Per- but that in itself is yeah, is but- an astounding stat. I mean, again, I think it's not something that I would have assumed or imagined. You know, this is the power of that wealth that if it was spent quite rightly elsewhere, we could achieve something great.
5: Well, this is a figure from the United Nations, $30 billion a year, U.S. starvation. Let's say they're wrong. Let's say it's $60 billion. Hmm. Just the U.S. military alone is spending over a trillion, well over a trillion yeah. dollars a year. Wow. So this is drops in the bucket. And, and the military spending has has gone up, you know, mm. it's double decreasing. You could just take it back a little bit in the direction of where it used to be uh, and you could solve many of the world's problems. Uh, clean drinking water around the world mm. would, would take $15 billion uh, a year if wow. you're putting trillions into death and
1: destruction. Wow, wow, wow David, you've really, really put things into perspective for us today Thank you very much for coming to the Voice of Islam show We've got a lot to talk about now After what you just said um, And we just hope to speak to you again sometime soon Assalamualaikum alaykum wa And peace be upon you
5: Same to you, thank you Thank, thank you very you.
1: much Imran, that was David Swanson And he is the Executive Director of World Beyond War He really just put it into perspective like What is going on You know that money that's being spent mm-hmm. on whatever, you know. First of all, we, we differentiated. There's military spending, there's defense spending, but it's all really blanketed and umbrellaed yeah. under the, the one term.
2: I think you mentioned that U.S. Uh, defense forces changed the name. Yeah, yeah. it's just of one thing. Yeah.
1: So it's, it kind of sounds like to me that it's very easy to get away <laughs> by by calling something defense spending. Oh you know, yeah. yeah, we're just defending our yeah. borders. It's all about international, no national security. Yeah. Where of course a lot of that money we qu- yeah. obviously know is being spent for many of these mm-hmm. wars and other and uh, no, other other. I think you mentioned expenditures. very important.
2: Pointing point that you know um, um, uh, we forgot we forgot to mention that these uh, military equipments they are the you know one of the main reason of climate change or you know pollution and uh, if uh, I think he said that only three percent th- of that budget can solve the hunger and also you know clean water program so the uh, US military spend more than a trillion dollar per year on his on his defense or military system uh, military you know um, budget. So um, th- it is an enormous amount of money. I think this is interesting because
1: mm. what it seems like to me is that most of the, the, the spending is mm. happening on military mm. and not so much on defense. And perhaps what, as David was suggesting, mm-hmm. is that even if we were to entertain the notion that, you know, there needs to be some kind of defense budget, mm-hmm. it would be very minimal mm. compared to what we currently have across the globe. Yeah, yeah. So mm. this is where I feel like I could draw the line on this, that th- there is a defense there is need for some kind of defence, some kind of surveillance to, mm-hmm. to ensure your security is it worth 2 trillion? Do we need to go and sell it to other countries or, and engage in others, uh, other countries' uh, you know, interests and in their affairs? Mm-hmm. Probably not and this is where I think this we could probably see going, it goes back to the words of His Holiness, Muslim Muslim Muslim, I think you said it Imran in the beginning mm-hmm. that first and foremost you need to look at the welfare of your people Absolutely. and if there's still hunger in your country if there's still poverty mm. if there's still lack of education are surely are those not greater concerns you know than potentially you know mingling with another country's affairs at the moment absolutely i mean if
2: we if we talk to uh, talk america you know uh, there's a huge problem of drug drugs in in america mm. and there's a there's a hunger still hunger in america so uh, spending your money uh like 8 billion um 8 billion dollars on military and not looking towards those you know problems I think it's a it's it, it doesn't look you know it uh, doesn't look good for me while on other hand you know China they are putting their money on infrastructure on the people yes they are they're putting their their, um, their money on military budget as well but as compared to America it's just doesn't doesn't you know it doesn't have
1: uh, much So Wow um, I mean this is important right? You you you've mentioned that Here's where I stand From an Islamic approach As well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's important To have Some kind of defence But you cannot justify it Like you, Imran You just said When you mm-hmm. haven't justified The stability Of your other infrastructure mm-hmm. And I think this If I go back to the time Of Haddad Umar anh, Who was the second caliph Of Islam Where he established Things like roads Taxes Charities Welfare um, states mm. where you could have benefits, for example, mothers, children, fathers, they could go, you know, go to sleep knowing that they would have some kind of stipend the next day if they were not able to get something, schools, education. All of this was established. Mm. But at the same time, Hazrat Umar, anh, remember this was a whole new civilization, also established an army. He did yeah. do it. It's not like he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And that was there, protecting and patrolling the borders of the Islamic governance mm-hmm. at that time and we obviously know that at that time a lot of pillaging would take place a lot of tribes a lot of even countries and counties would always be trying to supersede one another attack someone at night pillage them at night on horseback and run away kill their mm-hmm. people so this mm-hmm. is why there was a defense in place yeah. uh, but if you look at that and tally that with everything else that Hazar Umar did it seems like Hazar Umar was so invested in all of the other things whether, like I said, whether it was building infrastructure, mm-hmm. building bridges, building schools, building hospitals, all of this was something that was not really heard of yeah. before he had come. And that tells you that he had a great focus on those things.
2: Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned a great point that Islamically, if you look at Islamic history, Hazrat Umar or Hazrat Abu Bakr Siddiq they have some sort of military, but their first and foremost, uh, you know, uh, uh, responsibility uh, was to do, to discharge their duty towards their subjects, so they uh, did make you know um, uh, with regards to education, infrastructure, and uh, he created a, you know battle mall from which you you get stipends for for the poor people yep. stuff like that. So so he he created opportunity of jobs. So everything after everything. Then obviously you have to have some sort of military. I've got a very you know um, interesting f- fact regarding you know current situation. So Russia, Russian military expenditure increased by approximately nine point two percent last year to eighty six billion dollar. Okay. And Ukraine's military spending was four point uh, sorry forty four point uh, zero billion last year, an increase of. Six hundred and forty percent. Wow! So uh, then you, you, uh, you can you can you know uh, look that after war they have increased their budget six hundred and forty percent the budget. Wow! And not putting their resources to the people and to the subjects. You know it's
1: it's 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 like we almost don't think about it exactly what the scale of this is because mm-hmm. it's not just about buying weapons. Yeah. Yeah. You can buy a weapon. You can buy aircraft. You can buy munitions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's also about the maintenance as well. Mm-hmm. You need yep. to make sure that they're working, they're being, you know, they're being maintained, they're being cleaned, they're being updated. That's one part of it. Mm-hmm. Then you bought weapons for security, but you need to buy security to secure the weapons. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> you need a whole infrastructure to protect your arms. Absolutely. And that's a whole thing which a taxpayer also has to pay for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all of this. And, for example, there are certain things like vessels, aircraft, even nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. which require experts to be dealing with them. Right. Always main checking that they're fine, that they're not—they're not becoming a hazard themselves. The upkeep of them—that in, in itself is a huge cost. That obviously we have to upkeep alongside the purchase of weapons itself. So, like David said in the beginning, you know, we we thought that the arms trade brings in a lot of money, but it wasn't—it was only point four percent of their of their total income revenue, right? Mm-hmm. Which isn't that much. Yeah. actually compared to mm. probably what they're spending mm. is it justified versus versus what they're bringing out yeah. versus what they're bringing in mm-hmm. you know it's kind of like uh I was, you know i speak to my wife the other day mm-hmm. i'm like you know maybe i should buy like a i mean sometimes a skateboard here and there and i'm thinking maybe i should buy some good one to commute to work and, and i and the, in the back of my mind i'm like am i really justifying it because <laughs> i'm gonna spend a lot of money on the skateboard is it gonna really save me the kind of money that mm-hmm. i'm thinking mm-hmm. and obviously if we scale this up on a military perspective is this argument mm-hmm. of it brings in money really that justified compared to everything that we've just spoken to what do you think
2: absolutely i think it it doesn't justify because uh, because the amount of spend, the amount of money you're spending on on the uh, on the military and defense it doesn't really you know uh, explain or doesn't really you know uh, justifies uh, the thing on the other hand this the money is causing harm to the people for example i think i think it was uh, our first caller was saying that we are most of our uk's weapon over we're selling our weapon to uh, saudi arabia and uh, you know uh, saudi arabia have a tension with, with this neighboring country and approximately th- more than 30000 people were killed because of indirectly or directly because of the you know uk's uh, Uh, military equipment so i think we really need to look at this
1: time that's absolutely right and we do have we're coming to the closes of this show and we've had a lot of discussions so far a lot of experts coming on with their insight and we do have lindsay with us on the line right now who is a program director at national priorities project at the institute for policy studies welcome to the show lindsay assalamualaikum peace be upon you how are you doing today I'm well, how are you? Excellent, we're doing really well. We're learning a lot about defence spending, the military spending that comes within that, and exactly the impacts that it's having around the world. Um, Lindsay, could you tell us about your project, the National Priorities Project? We've heard about a few other projects today, and you know, it's been really, really amazing to learn about that. What is the idea behind the National Priorities Project? What are your objectives?
7: Well, National Priorities Project was founded in 1983 when, in the U.S., President Ronald Reagan was overseeing a big increase in military spending, um, and alongside that, a big cut in spending on social programs. So uh, people were seeing their, you know, per- federal spending was being cut on everything from, uh, you know, nutrition programs and and food and hunger programs to local libraries and everything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, And ever since then, we've worked on changing the U.S. federal budget so that those priorities are shifted, so Mm -hmm. that we're not spending so much on the military uh, and spending more on human needs here in the U.S. and Mm -hmm. and internationally.
2: Mm -hmm. Wow. That's it. Lindsay, you know, um, having a large military, uh, one negative aspect of that is um, the bad effect on climate. So in what ways is militarism blocking the green transition and what first step could be you know taken to reduce military spending to protect our climate So there
7: are so many ties between militarism and climate one of them for the US is that the US is both has the largest military mm-hmm. on earth and the largest military budget on earth.
0: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, and we have military installations, more than 700 of them around the world. Whoa. We're putting mm-hmm. tremendous resources into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a military budget that's approaching a trillion dollars. Oh. Um, it's huge. It's, it's three times the next uh, military budget on earth, which is China. Oh. So we're putting huge resources Whoa. into our military and at the same time we're also the country that is responsible historically for the most fossil fuel emissions Hmm. so out of all the countries on earth we have spewed the most fossil fuel emissions um, that are what creates climate change Mm -hmm. so we have a huge responsibility Um, and we are still we're not the number one emitter today but we're still in the top two so we have a huge responsibility Um, and what we need to do is shift those resources because we have those resources um, we're a wealthy country, we but we're putting so many of those resources into the military. And so what we need is a mm. massive shift wow. of resources okay. away from militarism and into climate solutions.
1: I mean, Iran it kind of reminds me of uh, His Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmad. He's a worldwide head of the community of mm-hmm. the Ahmadis. And he also, also said something similar to this, that a lot of people talk about climate change and the environmental impacts that it would have. And they're very concerned, but they tend to forget that when it comes to mm-hmm. nuclear weapons, when it comes to military Im- establishments, yeah. they have a large contribution to this. And we should really be heavily focusing on that. And this is exactly what we're talking about right now. But like you said, Lindsay, in the beginning, uh, you're trying to get the priorities right, mm-hmm. if, if, if that's what it is in a nutshell. And the US military budget, as you've already alluded to, is pretty big. Um, you know, one of the biggest I would say in the world. So, what exactly um, are, are you, first of all, trying to achieve with this? And where currently is this funding going specifically?
7: Well, the US military, like I said, it is, it is the largest military budget in the world um, by quite, quite a lot. Quite
1: a margin. Um, <laughs> about
7: half half of that budget every single year goes to for-profit corporate military contractors. Mm -hmm. Um, Almost all all of them based in the United States, although some based in other countries. Um, There are are the top five military contractors um, in the U S take in tens of billions of dollars every year. And that's, you know, more than our entire budget for diplomacy and humanitarian aid. So that's where the money is going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have a huge system to keep that money coming in. They have there are hundreds of lobbyists um, that work in the u s. Congress on behalf of the industry. Uh, they make sure to scatter jobs around the United States so that every member of Congress has an interest in keeping that funding flowing because there are real jobs in their districts.
0: Mm-hmm. So they
7: have multiple ways that they keep this money flowing. Um, but the industry is is really a big is where the money is going, and mm-hmm. it is what keeps the money flowing.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, Lindsay, the U.S. has a you know vast arm industry. Can you discuss the influence of the army's industry in your country, and what makes it so difficult to cut back on military spending? What makes it so
7: difficult? It, it's a combination of things. It's the factor I just mentioned, which is the industry, which has tremendous power in Congress. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, they have. You know, they have put jobs in um, every congressional district so that, to make sure that every member of Congress, you know, all 435 of them mm-hmm. have been in, in the House and 100 senators all have an interest in keeping this money going. Okay. Um, there's also just, you know, U.S. politics um, where the vast majority of people in the United States and certainly the majority in Congress still believe that the U.S. should be a hegemon in the world, still believe that the U.S. should be the single superpower mm. um, in the world. And that's a big driving force right now. Uh, mm. If you listen to folks in Congress, um, you'll hear talk about China constantly and how China is threatening the U.S. Mm. And of course, they don't mean a direct military threat to the U.S. They mean mm. that there's a threat to the U.S. being the sole superpower Real. as it has been mm. in the last A couple of decades, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a huge interest in maintaining that, and in maintaining that through having the world's largest and most powerful military.
2: Hmm. Oh wow! Do you think it's working? Because spending on military more and more, but you know, as compared to China, China is not spending that much on military, but they're still gaining the influence in the world. So, do you think the the idea of uh, the, the Congress is working?
7: No, it's not. It's not working. I think there's a big miscalculation there. Um, there's this idea that somehow it's China's military power. That's what's most important when, you know, what's important is China's economic power. What's important is the fact, the way that China is extending its economic power and its influence around the world. Um, and that's the, that's a complicated picture, just, mm-hmm. just as it is with the United States. Um, but it's, you know, it's not something that it's definitely not something that can be countered by the U.S. having a larger military.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is something that's food for thought, Imran, and you just mentioned it as Mm -hmm. well. And we're going to be speaking about this very, very shortly. But we are unfortunately coming towards the close of this uh, segment today. And we've really, really learned just a lot from you, Lindsay, and trying to get an idea of exactly why this is happening. And you know, Like you just quite rightly said, it's it's actually about the fight for the top spot and mm-hmm. staying there and keeping yourself mm-hmm. there and this is a really really important thing which I think we should discuss thank you very much Lindsay for coming on to the drive time show and we hope to speak to you again sometime soon Asalaamu Alaikum uh, Peace be upon you Alaikum thank you thank you that was Lindsay who is uh, the program director at the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies and Imran mm-hmm. she's mentioned a lot of things here. we've only got about six minutes to dissect <laughs> this um, one of the things let's begin mm-hmm. because we just mentioned it's about the fight for the top spot staying in the top mm-hmm. spot uh, you know that right now it's the US okay the US wants to be the top spot it, you know centuries before it was someone else centuries later it might be somebody else is this entire idea of there needing to be a dominant superpower that needs to be better than everybody mm-hmm. else is that something that we should be advocating for
2: I don't think so because if you look um, you know why what is the what is the you know uh, causes when you know you um, know uh, US become a, you know um, world's best economy is not through spending military you know uh, budget it is about education infrastructure and value yeah and putting okay. putting uh, your money into the resources into the people and not you know, just military so, so having, I think what, having the power what you're trying to say mm-hmm. is
1: that wherever a country has got to the top mm-hmm. by giving value to the people yeah that's That's correct, that's great. Mm. And if they continue to do that, they'll probably stay there. As you've just okay. alluded with, China
0: yeah.
1: is looking to do that. Mm. Okay. So where though, however, someone feels or a country feels that doing that by military means would work, it probably is a mistake.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So for you, you mentioned China briefly mm. and you mentioned that they're, they're putting in measures and whether it's business, whether it's mm-hmm. infrastructure, you, do you think that that's going to be a more... Profitable route. When I say profitable, I don't mean economically, but in the terms of valuing people.
2: I don't think so because just putting so much money on on uh, you know military, it it uh, it has a havoc on your climate change on other people's and uh, also when you trade arms and you trade your weapons, uh, you don't know, you know, uh, your weapons are going into what kind of people. They may be good, they may be bad. They might be against you. you (laughs) They might be against you, absolutely. So uh, I think uh, uh, there's one very good stat. So according to research, the UK's annual military spending contribute to one million tons of carbon. You know, detox uh, and UK military and arm companies are, uh, you know, surpassing carbon emission produced by 60 individual countries combined. So you can imagine that, you know, uh, the, 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 the weapon industry have an uh, the, the, the scale of the weapon industry which they are putting uh, on on, the, uh, on a climate change. So, and the US military is the single biggest polluter. And it is the largest institutional oil consumer and causes more greenhouse gases emission than 104 nation combined. Wow, so it and sounds like by m- climbing
1: to the top, they're destroying m- the ladder below them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And if the US military were a nation state, it would be the f- 24th largest emitter of greenhouse gases. And there's one, one very good quote. Professor Barry um, Sander in 2009 wrote in his book, The Green Zone, and he said the environmental cost of uh, militarism, even if every person, every automobile and every factory suddenly emits zero emission, yeah. the earth would still be headed head fast and af- at full speed towards total disaster for one major reason, the
1: US military. Wow. so So basically mm, mm. I mean don't I don't like don't discourage people discourage people from doing what they're doing Mm. to solve the environmental issues but really it falls directly into the hands of the militaries absolutely to do their bit to make sure that we keep our environment spick and span Mm.
0: because Mm. without
1: them this isn't going to work that's absolutely crazy but we can't end this off without mentioning of course that we've already mentioned in the beginning but His Holiness has been for a long time now has been speaking about the threat of munitions of war and of military expenditure hmm. do you want to tell us a little bit about absolutely so in his
2: holiness the head of the Muslim community in, in, in his speech in 2019 uh, he talked about the risk of escalation of conflict he said that the world is being uh, you know pledged by the blood soaked strain of controversial warfare in which uh, destructive weapons of mass destruction are being used to crush nations and to extinguish the uh, future prospects of the coming generation. In our selfish quest for wealth and power, we are ruthlessly destroying the prospect of today's youth through a never-ending stream of perpetual injustice and savage cruelty. A desperate yet very tangible fear is what is that what we are witnessing today uh, could at any moment escalate into a truly global catastrophe whose dire consequences are far beyond our imagination.
1: I think that pretty much sums it up. Mm-hmm. We, unless the globe, the world, together mm-hmm. works on this issue, I think all of the experts have been quite unanimous on this as well. That we're not headed for any kind of rainbow at the end, mm-hmm. or any kind of pot of gold, rather, at the end of this rainbow. This is not going to end well, okay. and there needs to be a curb on this.
2: I mean, rather than you know living uh, behind a legacy of prosperity, we are investing our money in in nuclear power and in just military hmm. spending, and if we are what what lesson we, or what you know conduct we are giving to our future generation. So that's the thing that that's the question we need to ask ourselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. And with that, we come to the close of the first hour on defense spending, military spending, absolutely waste of money. Call it whatever you want; mm-hmm. it's up to you. But that is. How it is, and um, we're going to be coming go- going out for the news, and we're going to be coming back after that for our next topic talking about languages. How many can you speak? Is it good to speak a lot? We'll find <laughs> out very soon after this short break and the news, which is going to come on out.
0: Oh.
6: اشهد <تصفيق> و
2: Listening to
1: the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalaamu alaikum rahmatullah and peace be upon you. We are back on the Voice of Islam Drive Time Show for the next topic: the bilingual brain, Imran, the <laughs> impact of languages on the brain. And I'm gonna tell you guys right now this is important because I thought that you're supposed to have your five a day <laughs> to be healthy. Okay, but yeah. it turns out I'm only half right <laughs> Because you're supposed To be learning languages yeah. To be having A healthy brain We're mm-hmm. going to find out A little bit more about this This is a live show 0208 I can say that Without looking at it now <laughs> yes uh-huh. so you can call us in so you're and let us run. know well sure <laughs> I don't know about that if, if numbers are a language then yes <laughs> but yeah social media is another place where you can get in touch with us that is Twitter and Instagram get in touch with us let us know how many languages do you speak do you think it's made you a little bit smarter mm-hmm. did you do well in your GCSEs because you know a few languages extra mm-hmm. we did a poll didn't we Imran
2: yeah so we, we have a poll what language do you want to learn and uh, we have a, a quite surprising uh, reply. So uh, five of them said Arabic, and uh, for example, uh, read with me. Um, said French and Arabic. Um, Zayan said Persian. Faisal said Arabic. Mm. Uh, Faisal another Faisal said Spanish. Aisha said Arabic. Uh, Navira said Arabic, uh, and uh, another guy said Arabic and English and Persian. So uh, we have a mix and uh, you know mixed response, but most of the um people said arabic. Okay. So I guess it's because um, as a muslim background you want to learn arabic because you you can understand the holy quran in a better way and also um you know um having speaking arabic it does give you some advantage if if you want to travel for example mm. I was um I, two months ago three months ago I was in morocco and I have um, I I'm, I can understand arabic and some words here and there I can speak as well. And uh, a police guy came to us and um, he said to us that you're not guys, you guys, not wearing seat belts. Oh no! So we were wearing me and my brother, we were sitting in the front seat, but uh, w- our family is sitting in, in the back seats. And he was saying that be- your family at this, uh, you know, back seat, they're not wearing belts, and um, because of that, you have to pay for something. It's like, I like think, it fine, fine. For like, okay. a, if I convert to the US pound, it's about, I think. Uh, £150. Oh, uh, so uh, <laughs> in UK, you just have to, you know, Whoa, quite um, rightly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in UK, you have to just, you know, um, uh, wear your seatbelt if you're sitting on the front seat. But here, apparently there was a law there that you have to, all of the percent you have to wear
1: the seatbelt. Right. That, so, that's enforced. You know, I'm not even sure about the UK law. I think you have to wear it in the back seat as well. Is it? It's, no? it's, just, <laughs> a, it's yeah. just the fact that it might not be uh-huh. as so much enforced. But the yeah. point is that you, you were able to converse with that guy. I, w- I
2: was able to converse with the, the guy in Arabic. Yeah, and,
1: uh,
2: and he let you go. I, uh, he let me go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man! This is the first and foremost benefit of speaking different languages. Uh, but of course, Imran, you seem like an intelligent guy. How many languages can you speak right now?
2: Um, um basically, my mother tongue is uh, um, Punjabi and Urdu, okay, so I can. That's I can two. Speak. Yeah, that's two languages. English I learn in school okay. and here also. Okay. And uh, some little bit I can say Arabic. Yeah, okay, let's yeah. uh,
1: let's test your intelligence. What's five plus five? <laughs> 10 oh is the earth round or is it flat
2: uh, round Ooh. some say a flat I'm just kidding <laughs> we're gonna
1: obviously find out what is going on with all of this we have a couple of experts lined up as well mm. to tell us about exactly what it can do for you but in Rotten, mm. let us know exactly what we have so far in terms of the research information
2: absolutely so um, you know in this in this uh, show we will develop into the intricate relationship between languages and the brain You know, um, unraveling the cognitive benefit and challenges of bilingualism Hmm. from enhanced problem solving skills to potential delays in cognitive decline. We'll navigate the uh, latest research, personal stories and expert insights and discover how speaking multiple languages shapes, you know, neuro. Uh, your neurological uh, pathways influences okay. uh, you know cultural perspectives and open new horizon for communication mm. and understand the profound impact language have on our brain fostering a multicultural appreciation for the mind's incredible adaptability so a survey of 2000 uh, uk adults was mm. conducted by replay in october 2021
1: by properly, yeah,
2: yeah probably and and um, and found that over a third Ie I, the 36 uh, percent of UK adults can speak more than one language fluently, and this means there are around uh, 24 million uh, bilingual adults in the UK. And a study also suggests, uh, c- conducted by the uh, University of Plymouth, that that uh, almost 20 percent of children of UK uh, of school uh, age in the UK are bilingual. So I think um, that's the, a trend in the UK and in and global as well. Um, is that um, one should have um, um, learn mo- m- uh, you know language more than once, um, more dual languages or three languages. Mm. So you, apparently it have a good effect on your mind.
1: I mean we're gonna obviously find out about the hard statistics of all of this quite soon and kind of exactly how it works. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. We want to know. Do you guys speak multiple languages and how has it affected your life, day to day life? Have you had any encounters where you felt you had the edge mm-hmm. and has it impacted you in any way? Before we do find out from you all listening to us right now, we're going to take on our first expert dr evan ashworth who currently works as a lecturer in the department of communication and journalism at the university of new mexico in the u.s and he's received his phd in linguistics from the university of new mexico in 2013 welcome to the show Assalamu alaikum wa and peace be upon you dr evan how are you doing today
8: oh very good very good thank you so much how are you
1: Excellent, we're doing very well here. We're, we're onto something right now. Some profound breakthrough and I hope you've got the answers for us. Um, before we do though, could you tell us a little bit about your background in linguistics? What got you there? And what's inspired you yeah, to be where you are?
8: Absolutely, so uh, back in 2003 is when I just really officially determined that I wanted to enter the field of linguistics. And that's when I received uh, my bachelor's degree in that field from the right. University of New Mexico. Uh, it was around that time that I just had received contact from my uh, would-be future dissertation director who invited me to participate in a language preservation project. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was very interested in it and didn't know how to get my foot in the door. And so that was what really introduced me into uh, the research that I continue today, which is on a indigenous language called Kewa, which is spoken mm-hmm. in northern New Mexico.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so, um what, you know, initially sparked your interest in studying bilingualism and uh, and the brain?
8: Yeah, so I guess that sort of interest had really existed throughout my whole life. I guess when I was a young child, I just remember being really interested in accents and celebrity impressions. So I think I have always had this interest in the bilingual brain since I was a very young child, even though I didn't know it at the time. Um, And then just through my undergraduate and graduate coursework, I was just, I learned so much about the benefits of bilingualism and multilingualism, Mm -hmm. and um, that, again, sort of happened around the same time when I was introduced to Tewa. This indigenous language that I'm working with.
0: Mm-hmm, uh,
8: and so it, it was ultimately, I think, a combination of coursework and just experience working with people in the communities and learning what it is like to speak that language and how it sort of represents their own uh, worldview, if you will.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. So, uh, Evan. I mean, Evan, just sorry, forgive me. I'm on your YouTube channel right now. I've actually navigated and oh. I found <laughs> it. Yes, indeed. Uh, Evan Ashworth, you've almost got 70,000 followers, by the way very close um this this is like crazy because I can see a lot of your videos you know some of them are like in the hundreds of thousands and clearly you're really passionate about what you're doing but not only that people are glued to this so I'm really interested to find out exactly what it is because clearly you know what you're talking about number one and you've spent a lot of time I and mean, some of your videos are from like eight years ago maybe even more than that so you've been in this for a long time so tell us please what are some of the key cognitive benefits associated with bilingualism
8: yeah so um, I think first of all there has been some literature on this that demonstrates that if you speak more than one language it doesn't just benefit your ability to communicate with other people from around the world That there's meaningful sort of advantages that you acquire cognitively, just generally being able to take on different tasks that are not mm-hmm. necessarily associated with language. Mm-hmm. There's a broad literature on that, and uh, my apologies, I can't draw from the many names of these studies here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one, but actually the more interesting question that kind of brought me to bilingualism is the this, this sort of, I guess, worldviews that speakers have in their heads when they speak multiple languages. Um, because, you know, speaking one uh, language like English is totally different from Tewa or from Navajo or French or whatever hmm. it is. So um, I, I think what's really interesting to me, this notion of being bilingual or multilingual, is that the speaker is essentially attending to different aspects of their reality based on the language that they are speaking.
1: Hmm, hmm. That's quite. Oh, so, uh, let me
8: try to give you an example of that um, mm-hmm. because that, that, that means nothing, maybe in the abstract. Mm-hmm. But for example, um, like if we just sort of look at the color spectrum
6: mm-hmm. and the
8: many ways in which the human eye can perceive the gradations in the color spectrum, uh, Paul Berlin and Brent Kay did this study back in the 1960s, and mm-hmm. it was just a really interesting study that looked at how different speakers um, of different languages categorize the color spectrum very differently. right? And mm. so, um, like Russian, for example, makes a distinction between light blue and dark blue as oh, basic color yeah. terms that English does not. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Or the way that we give directions in one language might be very different than another language. So um, the languages that we speak kind of force us to attend to certain aspects of reality.
1: Mm. Uh, oh, wow. And that
8: what what really drew my interest to bilingualism and multilingualism.
1: Wow, you know what? You've got me thinking at the moment. Like I can only speak English, Arabic, Urdu, and a bit of like a bit of Spanish, and I'm just trying to think that oh my, there must there must be loads of things. Evans mentioned this. There has to be lots of things where I I would even I would almost call it a limitation of a language. At certain points where there's a there's a certain language that's able to express something a little bit differently, and it opens your kind of horizons of thinking. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to know from obviously everybody but, listening at home as well do you have any examples within your own languages but evan please go on because this is this is kind of getting really interesting in the way that i want to know do you have any more examples um even if they're broad examples of how having different langu- the knowledge of different languages kind of broadens your perspective you, the way you kind of interpret things is there is there anything that we have on that
8: yeah so uh another example that i could think of is a language that i studied when i was younger which is called quechua and this Mm -hmm. language is uh, actually the most widely spoken indigenous language in north and south america it has several Mm -hmm. million speakers i would still argue that it's potentially endangered but that's another uh, matter altogether Mm -hmm. Um, the thing that i remember about quechua is sort of the way that they use metaphors is, is different than the way that metaphors are used in english okay so like in english for example when we say um we're looking to the past we use spatial reference like looking behind us
0: mm-hmm. so mm-hmm.
8: we take a lot of these spatial terms like in the back yeah um, mm-hmm. and we use that as a metaphor to refer to the past
0: mm-hmm.
8: uh, but Quechua doesn't do that and indeed, a lot of other languages don't do that. So um, there's questions as to whether this might, for example, uh, refer to, say, the writing system. Um, mm-hmm. English is written from left to right, so perhaps as a result, English speakers might envisage the left as being uh, representative of the past, wow. and then moving uh-huh. towards the right is representative of the future. Uh, and then there are writing systems, uh, like, well, Arabic, um, mm-hmm. Marcy, uh I think uh, Hebrew does the opposite, where mm-hmm. they go... From the right to the left, hmm. and so I think just not for mind writing, but also more specifically the language itself. Um, we don't think about this a lot if we're non-linguists, but mm-hmm. just the way that we speak the language like sort
1: of absolutely again, right. forces
8: us to attend to certain aspects of reality.
1: Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. I mean, I'm not a linguist, okay? So I mean, what I can already pick up, you know, from Arabic and Urdu, for example, Imran, you might you might mm-hmm. agree is like we have a system where. Certain pronouns, certain, w- the certain ways you address people, you have certain terms that you might use for youngsters, certain terms that you might use for mm. someone that's a bit older, someone mm. that you might respect, someone that's closer to you as a friend, whereas in English, immediate- there might be words for them, but mm. I might immediately turn to just you or something very basic and I can think oh wow there's loads of different ways to express that single pronoun and Mm -hmm. that depends I guess on on what kind of language you speak what kind of culture they Mm -hmm. have and what kind of understanding they have on on life and society around them and that that's amazing Mm -hmm. so that really tells me that yeah, yeah, the more you learn the better you know and the better understanding you probably have Mm -hmm. of the different cultures that exist that's amazing. You've though.
8: actually raised up another example that I wanted to bring oh, in. Oh, no! Um, <laughs> because it has to do with this notion of gender. Um, all right. gender thing that has a very different role in, say, Spanish than it does yeah. uh, in mm-hmm. English.
1: Even like, in Arabic,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm.
8: You're right, Arabic. So, regrettably, I know very little about that. No, language. that's you. Um, <laughs> with respect to, to Spanish, maybe Arabic is like this, too. You could confirm that. Spanish is, like, gender is an obligatory part of the language. Every noun has to get either a feminine (laughs) or a masculine Mm -hmm. sort of name, if you will. It's either la or el. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know whether that's the same in Arabic.
1: It's almost the same. Mm -hmm. I would say for most, uh, there's a lot of words that carry that rule. And And in Arabic also we have... Gender is almost non-specific. There are certain words which are assigned the the, the sort of feminine, let's say, uh, attribute attribute, but they're not. So, for example, the word tree is shajaratun. <laughs> it's a feminine word, but there's nothing inherently feminine.
8: gender-specific yeah.
1: about a tree. So that's quite interesting. But anyway, right. <laughs> anyway,
8: <laughs> right, 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 and. What I wanted to mention off of that is that there's this really fascinating study. This was published 10 years ago, and I forget the author's names, I should remember, because I talk about this to my (laughs) students in class. But they did this fascinating fascinating study where they took speakers of Spanish and speakers of Italian, okay. and those are both languages in which grammatical gender is obligatory. Okay. Um, so you have to say, you know, the, the sun is masculine and the, the moon is feminine, yeah. you know, as you okay. recognize, there's nothing inherently masculine mm. or feminine about either one,
5: mm.
8: uh, or at least sort of a priori. The interesting mm. thing in the study is that they found out that sort of a posteriori or after speakers you know have had this life experience of speaking English and Italian mm. Mm. Um, they tend to associate in Italian they they associate forks with being uh, feminine because uh. in Italian it's la forchetta uh. but in Spanish it's, it's el tenedor so speakers uh. of Spanish associate forks with being more masculine and mm. the evidence came from like let's use these cartoons where we have forks talking to other forks and speakers of spanish would consistently apply a masculine voice to the speaker of a fork whereas what? speakers of italian would consistently wow. apply mm. a speaker of uh, like a feminine voice to it because of
1: the gender systems wow mm. you know, I don't even know why I'm just getting so excited about, about all of this <laughs> because it is it's just really quite mind <laughs> blowing mm-hmm. I, I could kind of see Evan I don't know if this is something that you already knew when you started to study this or something that you gradually you know came across but this is like for people that haven't looked into this field or, or are considering a path maybe mm-hmm. this is the one because there's okay. so much to, to uh, Evan is there, a st- is there still a lot still to unlock let's put it that way in this field
8: Yes, uh, there there is a lot. I think there's actually uh, a nice analogy here to be made with the field of biology.
1: I
0: feel that
8: biology and linguistics are perhaps two of the only disciplines in which the Mm. practitioners are sort of presiding over the disappearance of their own objects of inquiry.
0: Mm. So,
8: I mean, biologists, they're looking at all these disappearing species uh, Mm. as a result climate change and so forth. I see. It's really the same thing with English, uh, or sorry, with, with language, mm-hmm. So maybe not a result of climate change, mm-hmm. uh, or directly anyway, but mm-hmm. um, when there's so many languages in the world that remain understudied because they have so few speakers, they're rapidly disappearing, so it really is a race not just to document them for posterity, but to try to understand sort of through the grammar the inner workings of these language and how just how widely varied language structure can be across the world's languages.
2: All right. So, Evan, do you you mind if I ask you how many languages do you you know?
8: (laughs) This is an embarrassing question to ask. (laughs) I always (laughs) always say I'm working on one. I mean, I'm I'm a native speaker of English, and I'm conversationally proficient in Spanish, and probably a little bit less so in Tewa and Quechua. But I, I wouldn't say confidently that I know any other language other than English which is uh, perhaps surprising mm. to hear a linguist say or uh, depending on who you talk to embarrassing
1: <laughs> no, I, I mean I, I, uh, you know like even with us mm-hmm. so we studied what is it, we studied in Islamic theology colleges and mm-hmm. I, I think it comes down to how you're going to use the language mm-hmm. and what you need to know about it mm-hmm. because even for me Imran I know you went to, to Morocco you said you, mm-hmm. you, know, you can speak a bit of Arabic mm-hmm. the Arabic that I know mostly stipulates and is beneficial around Islamic literature mm-hmm. if I go to Morocco Egypt or anywhere else I cannot speak their dialect mm-hmm. number one mm-hmm. and if I do They'll probably right. laugh at me. <laughs> so, right. yeah, I mean, it, it depends on really what you're going to use yeah. it for. Is it for a scholastic use? Is it for research use? And it really depends on that. So, I, mm. I, I believe Evan that your your holistic uh, understanding of these languages must be most more elite than perhaps even the adherence of those that speak it uh, locally. Mm. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So, but yeah. So, so Evan, um, I want to know because some people
2: did they do not show any interest in la- learning languages uh, so what drew you yeah. to to learn these kind of languages in your childhood maybe some some incident or uh, maybe your parents maybe your environment what drew you to to learn these languages
0: yeah
8: yeah that, that's a really good question and i think um i think part of this has to do with the fact that maybe i grew up as an only child and so i needed a lot more time by myself i had mm. a lot more time by myself to just around and be myself and explore the space in my own head, if you will. And I guess there's maybe a genetic aspect of this too, that some people feel like they're, that naturally, that languages come more naturally to them. Mm -hmm. I've always felt like um, that's, that's been me. Um, Obviously no language is easy. It takes intense time and effort, but just the relative ease with which accents can come to me or celebrity impressions of some types. I've just always known since I was young that I, that I was interested in and fairly good at studying languages uh, mm. and i think it was actually just fostered further from my parents just
1: reading oh, wow.
8: to me from a very young age influencing the importance of literature and uh, reading 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 so i think uh-huh. these, these these principles were instilled in me in a very young age in addition to my own kind of yeah genetic okay. disposition i guess to love language mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. dr evan i don't know if this is exactly um <clears throat> i mean i don't know if this is the most imp- appropriate question to ask on radio but you mentioned impressions I, I didn't mention it you mentioned it celebrity impressions
8: <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so
8: I think I know where you're going with this.
1: <laughs> well I mean even if you don't want to do them what are some of the ones that you tried to practice when you you know in your uh, prime well
8: like a, a Christopher Walken um, Morgan Freeman really wow uh, <laughs> yeah I, uh, it's, it's it's those types of celebrities that I don't know if uh, younger speakers even know who they are, but uh, sort
1: of oh. Morgan Freeman, I guess. I guess everybody knows Morgan Freeman. Um, you're going to have to, you're gonna have to give it uh, a shot. <laughs> so gonna yeah, have...
8: and uh, uh, a lot of pressure here, but let me try and get in the mind of, because uh, I try to do them as characters in movies. Just oh, right. With, uh, Andy Dufresne. <laughs> all what? through an aisle of, of muck and mire only to arrive clean on the other side no way <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing <Right. laughs> I mean see it's, it's not very good no 19... that was
1: excellent that was amazing <laughs> well I mean I'm, I, I, we're not that young mm-hmm. or we're not that old so we know mm-hmm. who Morgan Freeman is <laughs> yeah. and that was I would right think almost that. exactly the yeah. same yeah. so next time we will call you onto the show as Morgan Freeman <laughs> to give us expertise. I am ins- happy to
8: provide you
1: <laughs> but with that unfortunately that's all we've got time for today uh, Evan uh, Dr. Evan rather Dr. Evan Master of Linguistics and Celebrity Impersonations thank you very much for coming on to the show and we would love to have you uh, um, on again sometime soon I think we need to do a show now yeah. on, uh, on impersonations we have to it. do it thank you very much Salam Alaikum and peace be upon you thank you
8: Absolutely, alaikum and uh, have a great day you You all you too (laughs) guys
1: that was Dr. Evan Ashworth who who, as we have said was or is rather a lecturer in the Department of Communication and Journalism at the University of New Mexico and he received his PhD and his bachelor's in the University of New Mexico in 2013 we had a great chat right now about how really Knowing multiple languages can really broaden your horizons, isn't that right, Imran?
2: Absolutely, and I think, uh, as uh, Doctor, you know, um, mentioned that Evan mentioned that, you know, uh, learning new languages, it really, you know, um, uh, it really, you know, uh, basically, uh, you know you have more knowledge by learning languages and he gives so much example that by learning new languages you can understand different phrases and you, you can understand yeah. different cultures and also understanding that why people speak or you know behave in a certain way so I think this is a very uh, good thing to learn uh, i think i have to choose one now to learn uh, uh, to absolutely we, i think we all do
1: yeah. um but with that we you know we've had a lot of expert callers in today and we're just loving it absolutely yeah. great that we're yeah. actually learning so much and we have with us right now romaine simmons professor who is an award-winning teacher and cxc examiner with 15 years of experience and 15 merit list awardees welcome to the show romaine how are you doing today
6: Good afternoon, I'm well,
1: how are you? Excellent, we're doing absolutely amazing and we're really happy that you're on the, the show with us today and we've just kind of given a slight introduction with you, you've been teaching for a while and we're obviously talking right now about bilingual approaches to life and kind of figuring out is it really a good idea to you know, speak multiple tongues? So, But before we do that, um, could you tell us about your teaching philosophy and your approach when it comes to teaching language?
6: Right. Now, in terms of teaching language, specifically a foreign language, the approach that I try to employ is one which is engaging to the students and it allows them to do things that they are required to do in, the, in their real life. Right. Uh, those things include day-to-day things of reading persons, from simple things as that, to more complex things of making requests of persons. Mm-hmm. Ensure that the lessons that you're doing, they are tailored so that they fit that and the students can immediately see that wow if i were to be interacting with somebody because i teach spanish right Mm -hmm. or to be interacting uh, with somebody from you know one of the many countries that are Spanish speaking one of the millions of
0: persons Mm.
6: who are you know who speak spanish then i would be able to make this particular request of the person
0: Mm -hmm. i would be
6: able to apologize to the person i'd be able to explain or give an instruction to the person when they see that when they see that they can actually do something like that,
2: Okay. learning before long seem more worthwhile hmm. Hmm. Um, Roman, can you, do you how do you see the further you know the future of bilingual education uh, evolving especially in the globalized world okay I gladly mentioned the globalized world. Hmm. you know uh, we, we
6: use the term globalization a lot hmm. the reality is that we are being pushed to interactive persons from all over the world more known than ever. We are like I am I'm teaching in Jamaica and the Caribbean. And uh, in the Caribbean we are interacting more and more with neighbors of Latin America with persons from the United States of America who are of Hispanic descent and speak Spanish, Spanish, Spanish. Persons who are teaching French elsewhere, English elsewhere, you know, keep a foreign language elsewhere. We are teaching persons who are growing up in a world that because of the internet, because of greater trade relations, uh, it has forced persons to do more business with each other, to have more business mm. with, with each other, to have more, you know, working together. And in working together with persons from all over the world, it forces us, of course, mm. it encourages us, rather, to be able to communicate with them using their mother language.
1: All right. Mm. I mean, Romain, you've, you've kind of spoken about all of this, and obviously, nowadays, we're seeing a rise in technology I mean I would even say there's a rise in artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and the way that open source is you know changing the way that we look at text uh, even imagery but let's just talk about language just for mm-hmm. now and text I mean I use things like ChatGBT other text tools there's I'm an editor so we use converting transcripts to you know subtitles etc there's so many tools yeah. that are already around that make uh, it easier for people to get things done do you think that when it comes to the world of learning languages, uh, th- there are tools that are, you know, recently have become prevalent that are going to be quite useful for people, or is there anything in the pipeline uh, that you you know about?
6: Right, because of the technology, I, you mentioned chat uh,
0: chatgpt, Yeah.
6: And there um, yeah, are quite a number of other uh, technological devices, arts, etc., that person used. And um, I, I said, yeah, actually, I bought ODR.
2: They will impact the language learning environment. Yeah. So, no? yeah, yeah. So, um, Roman Right. No, yeah. Go on, go on, please. Yes. Okay. Right, cool. No, in terms of the language learning and uh, the, the different technologies,
6: they
2: they
6: have enhanced you know the language learning experience
8: because
6: with, for example, artificial intelligence. What we can do is that, you know, uh, we can get the students Mm -hmm. to experience a sort of interaction
0: with Mm -hmm.
6: the language that is harder to do without leading your country to get to a native, get to a person who speaks the foreign language. Right. You can just use a particular app that gets them in a particular scenario and then, you know, encourages or forces them to actually react in a particular way in terms of what they say or what they understand
2: based on what has been. It's out to them. hmm mm-hmm. So, look, you know... At uh, GPT. Yeah. yeah. Please, please. Yes.
0: hmm
6: You might now say that GPT offers, of course, a way to, you know, to scourge search mm-hmm. the internet, and you can find um, information there that can be useful for a specific task for students. I am very wary sometimes of how they use translators online, because sometimes those can discourage somebody from learning the language if they say to themselves that they can use this translator instead of being able to communicate. But when we, we should feel the shortcomings of online translators, hmm. um they are not <laughs> better able to say that well, really need to know how to say this than to just be able to make one sentence. When if I know how, you can have me make a million sentences just like that.
1: Absolutely. Um Romain of course we we can see I mean you Seem to have a lot of passion for people wanting to learn languages, and one thing that I'm thinking is that with the prevalence of tools like ChatGPT, GPT and the, people might actually be turned off of, of, like you said, you know, of learning the language in the first place. They're like, you know, what's the point? I can easily get things translated, I can go here, I can, t- you know, get this to convert. And of course, for that reason, at the same time, it's probably very important for you know people to use the same tools to create tools which make it easily and you're know, as easy to learn a language as well as to you know translate it for example so remain that's a really really important point we really enjoyed having you on to the show today and we hope to have you on again sometime soon and uh, with that we would say farewell assalamu Alaikum wa ta'ala. uh peace be upon you thank you very much for coming on today on the show Alright, thank you very much Thank Thanks you very all. much, it was pleasure. That was Professor Remain Simmons Who is an award-winning teacher And a CXC examiner With 15 years of experience And 15 merit list awards Here, Here's the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because he, he's speaking about First of all, obviously The need for 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 us to be bilingual In the first place mm-hmm. But at the same time When we kind of No, I was thinking about this When we delved into technology mm-hmm. It has kind of changed the game A little bit Absolutely has it not?
2: I think. I think. In my opinion, uh, for example, you know, sometime um, if I have to do the translation uh, English to Urdu, mm. I use instead of you know, um, uh, instead of you know, putting my own effort, sometimes use you know Google translation or similar tools like that. So I think uh, in the long term, <laughs> it it will actually will not benefit me because I'm just you know. Being lazy and just putting over there and just translating. But if you if you want to just want to get help, you can get help. But just fully translating something on Google Translation or using these kind of tools. Stu- mm. uh, tools, I think it can uh, in the long run it can it will well, not benefit you. In my I, opinion I think <coughs> yeah.
1: I think that there's a pros and cons of it. But I think mm. that I know of an app. I can't remember its name right now. Uh-huh. I, I saw some someone use it the other day actually. Okay. It's a, it's a, it's an e-learning tool. Okay. And the way it works is that the person on the other side is just a bot. It's an AI Uh bot. Uh And you pretend to, or you assume a conversation which would normally happen in real life. Okay. And you speak to that person, they they say a sentence and then they wait for you to respond. And if you make a mistake or you don't say something the right way, they will then tell you this is how it was supposed to be said. So you're basically engaging with a almost a real person speaking in that native language so if let's say if you wanted to learn Spanish you would almost be engaging with someone who speaks Spanish and so this is something which you probably would have had to pay for Mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. hire a Spanish teacher, yeah. a tutor find uh, Spanish classes online where now all you have is an app and, and, and this AI bot will assume the role of that individual yeah. and that, that makes life a lot easier for someone who actually wants to learn the language and when it comes to <coughs> you mentioned Google mm-hmm. Translate mm-hmm. I, I personally think it's not that good <laughs> <laughs> it's recently became good I think but, <laughs> but, I mean I don't know if they've, if they've picked up on OpenAI but okay. for example for Arabic um, you know sometimes yeah. we're looking into commentaries and mm-hmm. other things of the Quran and before where we would be you know piecing things together trying to figure out mm. what would be the correct english interpretation for this mm-hmm. things like openai mm-hmm. chatgpt are very very efficient now yeah. in yeah. translating hordes of text yeah. and while i do think that this will take away a lot of effort of mm-hmm. you learning um learning the new language mm-hmm, i think yeah. it will at the same time it will remove a lot of barriers of fear of oh, people sure. who Otherwise, we don't even have bothered. Mm-hmm. They will be like, oh, Arabic, I've got to look into this. I have to read this book. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't. It's going to be too difficult. Mm-hmm. Open a dictionary, do this. But now that that's around, mm-hmm. they might be more encouraged in, to go and read that Arabic book in the first place mm-hmm. because if they get stuck or if they, they, they're a bit afraid, they've got these sources to help them translate and they can analyze as well, side mm-hmm. by side. Okay, this is where I got stuck. This is what I couldn't understand. Mm-hmm. This is how... OpenAI or whatever has translated it. And you won't forget that. Mm.
2: I think uh, there was, uh, I think uh, I was looking towards some ad and it was a specific app. So if you uh, speak into your, uh, speak to that app and uh, uh, the app will translate, for example, um, uh, there was some, uh, uh, there was showing in the ad that if you go to Spain and if you speak uh, English and the the, the app automatically uh, translate that thing into Spanish and that's how you can communicate. I think that's a good tool, but at the end, it will some somehow put you down <laughs> to not learning, you know. Yeah, I uh, hope. Not learning I do truly hope
1: that it doesn't become that kind yeah. of a barrier.
2: Similarly, I know one person who's living in the UK, and uh, he he uses this, this kind of app. So he, he 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 speaks French, and that the 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 the, the, the app translates into English. But he's living in the UK for like maybe five or six years, but, but yeah. he hasn't. He cannot speak maybe one full sentence of English. He can't. He can't. He can't. Oh he wow. Cannot. Because of he's just using the, that app, and he's too much, you know, um, too much, you know, uh, we can say that using the app and not putting his effort towards actually learning the mm. language. So I think sometimes it can really, you know, it can become a hurdle in mm. your in your. It,
1: language. it does sound like it mm. definitely can, mm. and I, mean, I hope that it doesn't really. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Um, you know, there's spoken language. Mm like if you said you you speak you speak Urdu for example mm-hmm. I speak English mm-hmm. uh, we learn Arabic we've learned a bit of Persian <laughs> or whatever yeah mm. um there's a spoken language and then there's a grammat- grammatical yeah. side of language mm. and personally for me I don't know why I really like the grammatical side of language because okay. it's like maths to me it's like it all clicks it's like here's the rules you do this and you do this you get that uh-huh. you add this to this and then you get that and especially with things like Arabic which are very structured languages uh-huh. everything just makes sense and it's, for me it's like an OCD language it has okay. to make sense like if, it doesn't, if a word is shaped in a certain way and it, in, in, it's not making sense to you why does it look like that mm. I'll get annoyed by that
2: I, I, that's totally opposite for me because funny I don't like the grammatical side of language because it's too much for me and I don't, I don't like the math as well. So for me it's all about structure and you know a patterns. If the, that making the sense that for me it's uh, it's making the sense. But if I go too too much into the details of grammatical, I forget everything. Really,
0: so, yeah, I, I think for producing.
1: me, <laughs> <laughs> for me, when it comes to grammar, cause when we had Doctor Evan on as well, he was mm-hmm. talking about like uh, certain languages that have feminine and masculine, mm-hmm. and then in Arabic you have even more meticulous mm-hmm. things than that. Mm-hmm. You have certain words when they're ser- when they're pronounced in a certain way, mm-hmm. they they you know they express exaggeration. In other ways, they might express surprise Mm -hmm. in other ways they might express grandeur and it's the same word Mm -hmm. but it's just written in a slightly different way Um, what they call in arabic bab which means a weight so for example you have the word um, akbar which means the greatest Mm -hmm. but then the word same word transformed into kabir Mm -hmm. means something else uh, you know and there are so many different types of words that come from the same stem from the same noun or the same verb even but they'd mean different things if you put them in a certain way and that makes me appreciate that word even more than before but to know that I think if you speak to someone who speaks Arabic or English but they've never really understood the grammatical side of it Mm -hmm. they may not necessarily see it from that perspective Mm -hmm. or that angle they've just taken it kind of for granted and when Dr. Evan was talking about this it kind of reiterated to me that while learning a language is important if you really want to appreciate it and kind of get to know why is this word like this and yeah. where did it really come from you need mm. to know a bit of the grammar
2: absolutely i mean um other day i was uh, reading actually a, a book of the Messiah in, in which he mentioned that in arabic for the camel there's more than uh, 700 names for just for the camels so wow. it's for different situations, for different environment, maybe a different color of camel. They have a each of, yeah. of their situation. They have a different name. For example, he was saying that um, the usual word for camel is Jamal, right? Hmm. But ibel um, is the, that camel which leads in front from, from front, and all of the camels, uh, you know, follow them. And usually, ibel of the ibel is the camel which is the have a very have experience of journeys long journeys and it really you know and navigate the way uh, uh, so uh, the promise Messiah was saying that uh, in this actually it's the verse of the Holy Qur'an mm-hmm. that um, ponder upon that how we created the ibl so uh, the promise Messiah was stating that in this verse we have a lesson of uh, leadership, or there should be a one leader of Ummah. Wow! Talafet.
1: So that's crazy because yeah. you might look at the word ibil and you be like, "Oh, it's a camel." Yeah. But within the Arabic language, yeah. it doesn't mean camel. It means yeah. so much more than that, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think this small thing if you know, then you uh, you have the ability to to you know uh, uh, to explain the Holy Quran You're in depth. You're right. Depth, and you know, also this it is it.
1: <coughs> and I think when Dr. Evan mentioned this this you know thing of of kind of having different perspectives of language. Perhaps Mm -hmm. this is what was going through my mind. Mm -hmm. I couldn't quite put my finger on it then, but I think I just have put my finger on it. Mm -hmm. Because when it comes to the Arabic language and the Quran, which Mm -hmm. the Muslims adhere to, and we read the Quran and all of the verses and even just the words, Mm -hmm. they have multiple meanings. And you learn to appreciate that through the Arabic language. For example, if I say to you, observe the prayer, Mm -hmm. what you mean might understand by that in English is just mate, go and read your, your Fajr yeah. go and read yeah. your Zohar yeah. and your Asr and your Maghrib and your Isha and maybe Taajud the zuhr and that's what you would understand from it because that's as far as I can, I'm concerned as far as English can express that mm-hmm. but Arabic goes way further because no. it doesn't say observe the prayer actually mm-hmm. it says right. and Imran, I think you already know that doesn't just mean to observe the prayer yeah. but it means in one, one meaning mm-hmm. to stand up your prayer Absolutely. which yeah. means what? It means that there are going to be times where mm. you're going to get lazy mm. and your the, the quality and the, the longevity and the the quality. constants mm. of your prayer will decrease yeah. and it will fall down in quality. So you need to pick it back up. Mm. Now, there isn't a word in English which can combine the word observe and, and all of this mm. into one word. Absolutely. And yeah. that's why learning multiple languages and using those words mm-hmm. instead of what you might have known in the beginning mm-hmm. can convey <laughs> such a deeper meaning. Do any others come to your mind? Absolutely, I think that is why that when we read Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says,
2: I think is a very, um, um, very good verse regarding this topic. Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran, And among His sign in the creation of the heavens and the earth and the diversity of your tongues and colours, in that surely are signs for those who possess knowledge so allah the almighty is saying to us that you know uh, by looking towards why people have a uh, why people uh, speak in a certain way or uh, there's a different kind of texture or different kind of uh, you know um, i would say um, different kind of you know uh, stories or you know a uh, method which the people speak of their language it's it's really you know have something I think we should do some research on this that uh, people speaking different languages what thoughts and why they they can speak they can thought in a certain way and you know i think the doctor it was our first guest who was saying that you know um in in Engle- English we say that you know when we are referring to past that you know. Uh, in uh, in my behind this thing happened, hmm. but in in other languages we doesn't you know really use that hmm. thing. So in in this verse, Allah the Almighty saying that the human progress is closely linked with the diversity of tongues and colors, and this diversity again points to a design and a designer. That designer is the Creator. Of heavens and the earth. Underneath that diversity of tongues and colors, which has resulted in diversity of civilization and cultures, there lies a unity, the unity of mankind. This oneness of unity leads to the inevitable conclusion of the oneness of its creator.
1: I mean, speaking of the heavens and the earth, again, like. With the Arabic language It's, it's quite particularly peculiar mm-hmm. Because we have A verse of the Quran Which says mm-hmm. For example And what this translates to uh, Again English can only so much Translate it uh, That everything mm-hmm. Is in an orbit mm-hmm. And this whole verse And this longer verse So I'll, I'll just quote it A part <laughs> of it Talks about how The moon And the sun And the earth Are all in an orbit okay. And then it continues to say That everything mm-hmm. Indeed is in an orbit. First of all, to have particularly known these details in the time of the Prophet Muhammad wasn't as easy mm. as it is now. So first of all, that itself elucidates, uh, elaborates the fact that this is some kind of divine scripture. Mm. But furthermore, if you look into this, "kullun fi falakin" means everything is in an orbit. This mm-hmm. is what the English can express. Yeah. But in Arabic, not only does it say this, it's a palindrome, which means that "kullun fi is is spelt the same when you spell it forwards mm-hmm. and it's spelled exactly the same when you spell it backwards as well uh-huh. so it's K-L-F-I and then K-L and then it'll be the same backwards as well in mm-hmm. Arabic which is amazing uh-huh. and what that means is, is that yes everything is in an orbit and if you put these letters together on a line every single so the K at the one end Will match the K on the other end, and you can literally draw a circular orbit around wow. each letter. And this is mm. a beautiful way mm. of expressing something, not just through saying it, but through showing it. Mm. And um, uh, for those of you who want to check this out, you can go online and uh, research about palindromes in the Quran, for example, mm. and other linguistic amazing things that have have occurred.
2: I think that's why in the Holy Quran, Allah said that this Holy Quran is a miracle because you know the Holy Quran I think you was mentioning as well that uh, one cannot produce something similar like that and this was a challenge Allah Ta'ala put in the Holy Quran that if you think that this man I the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon is lying on the God and this Quran is not from God and other than God then bring something like this and you know the, the, the Arab they're very eloquent in in uh, you know in their, in their speech in their uh, poetry in their language but uh, some some of the historians say that most of the Arabs, or some at least some of the you know poets, they leave the poetry after the, after the Holy Quran revealed. So that show that is that shows the the that the that linguistics or the language itself or the Quran itself is a miracle it's absolutely
1: amazing you have uh, what we know as the letters of abjad in the Quran as well again this is an Arabic phenomenon you wouldn't understand this in English meaning that every single letter potentially has a numerical value Mm, and certain scholars and saints have attributed this to mean that certain verses of the Quran if you add the numerical value up are also trying to tell you something Mm -hmm. can you imagine that Mm -hmm. imagine in the English language there's some kind of numerical Morse code and it's all got some secret deeper meaning and this is something that you would never think of Mm -hmm. and uh, when it comes to you know the Quran uh, for example I was looking at the other time Mm -hmm. there is in Surah Najm Mm -hmm. it mentions the star of Sirius and Najm and then it mentions the the word Ard for example the word Earth and, and many other things and if you calculate the numerical value of the uh, Najm the word Najm and then you calculate the numerical value of al, uh, then you measure the distance of letters between
0: mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. verses. Okay.
1: The exact distance, or oh, I think it was 69. Point something light years, billion light years, okay. is exactly the same numerical value it gives you in that in that verse.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, which is quite crazy. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that has to be factually like up to date, but what I'm trying to say is that this is how certain languages view things they view things in a completely different way to what you might do so in English mm. and you can only know that if you know those languages
2: I think maybe our listeners are, are thinking that why are we talking so much to Arabic, uh, about the language of Arabic I'm going to answer that because over in, in the world there are more than 7000 languages known in the world and many researchers have conducted have uh, you know uh, concluded that Arabic load words have made into many languages the founder of Ahmadi Muslim community, the Promised Messiah, sallallahu Ahmad of Qadian, he, he said, one of his in his book Minar Rahman that Arabic language possesses excellent qualities and sign, which in the eyes of scholars invest it with the status of a mother in relation to other languages, and these languages are like a shadow in relation to a, a shadow in relation to Arabic, or like sparrows in relation to a praying falcon." So that is why we're focusing so much on Arabic because the Promised Messiah and also Holy Quran claim that the Arabic is the mother of languages. And uh, in order to prove that, I want I recommend everyone to read his book Minur Rahman and uh, other books in which he states that, uh, he explains that how Arabic is the mother uh, of all languages. And this is also the sign from God. That is why Allah Ta'ala revealed Holy Quran in the Arabic language because, because it, it can explain the thing in very in very you know in very depth and in very simple words
1: it's amazing because you're reminding me about so many different things where the Quran for example says which means that and what will tell you what Mm -hmm. is the Tariq and Mm -hmm. everybody's like what what is the Quran saying something is a Mm Tariq and Tariq in Arabic means something that knocks makes a knocking sound and it's talking and then it describes it it says that this Tariq is an al-Thakib thakib. It is a star. Al-Najm means star, okay. which makes a hole or pierces. Because Al-Najm uh-huh. a thakib means to pierce something. <laughs> so, <laughs> some translators, for a very long time, translators interpreted this to mean a piercing brightness or a piercing light. Okay. But when new scientific research came out, what we've understood now is that wow, a tariq is talking about pulsar neutron stars oh. because a t- pulsar neutron stars, when you put them under a sound wave, mm-hmm. they make a knocking sound like this. Wow. This is what they sound like. Okay. And atarik, this is how the Quran explained it. Mm-hmm. And then it says an najmul thaqib mm-hmm. that the atarik, which is the pulsar star, which makes a knocking sound, also makes a piercing effect. Now, what mm-hmm. on earth? Mm-hmm. Because the the commentators of that time didn't know about this, they just mm-hmm translated it as they felt but the arabic wording also facilitated for much deeper meanings mm-hmm. which we now know is that pulsar neutron stars when they are about to go into supernova <laughs> their denseness and their field of gravity get so strong uh-huh. that they create black holes in the universe uh-huh. they rip space time and in the dark matter you'll see a dense wave and they go down like a needle piercing mm. a, a fabric that and i mean this is how <laughs> arabic language facilitates for, you know, terminologies and ideas that you would never imagine. Now I
2: understand why, you know, in our survey, five people want to
1: learn Arabic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, yeah. uh, even yeah. more well-known things like mm-hmm. embryology, for example, I think mm-hmm. it was in the late 1950s mm-hmm. that we really looked into this uh, as a modern world mm-hmm. where the Quran talks about things like al Mudra, mm-hmm. al alaqa an nutfa. Yeah. And these are all Arabic words where in, 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 in English you're very limited in the way you can kind of describe what mm-hmm. they mean. Yeah, yeah. But al mudga al alaqa is talking about something inside a, a woman mm-hmm. that was is, is becoming a child. And the way it explains it mm-hmm. is that it looks a little bit like something that's been chewed up. Okay. What a strange way to mm-hmm. to explain something. Mm-hmm. And then in, in in the next verse it says that it looks like something which is like a parasite. Now wow, I mean obviously this is a radio show so I can't show you this (laughs) but if you go and look at the embryonic stages of development you look at the first and second yeah. stages of how the, the embryo with this spinal um, cord, it's still developing, looks like a piece of gum that's been chewed between the teeth. I cannot tell you how canny, uncanny I mean, it is. this is one of the signs of, yeah.
2: of the Holy Quran that 1400 years ago but the Holy Quran is dis- sprying as
1: someone's looking through the microscope. Exactly. Know, through, through and the, these are uh, not yeah. things that they were very that yeah. really that small. Yeah. And to make things look, look like a parasite, it really does look like that. Mm. So, Arabic was able to convey this message in a way that perhaps it was so deep that even the people at that time may not necessarily have understood it. Mm-hmm. And this is important because you mentioned camels, Imran, mm-hmm. and then I was like thinking, "Whoa, yeah, well, you said that camels have seven hundred names. Mm-hmm. Like, that's interesting because the modern-day camel is the car, <laughs> and the, and the modern-day car also has hundreds of names. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. have br- different brands, and, different and you names. also have different styles modern, as well. So, yeah. And just like the, at that time um, when the Prophet <laughs> sallallahu alaihi wasallam said." Um, you know wh- wh- what's the verse that says "ilal um, ibili"? Uh, yeah, uh, no, there's another one that says, "and uh, how the sheep camel uh, will be abandoned." Oh, uh, um, the the Arabic is has gone through my head, and I can't remember. It. That's uh, that's similar, mm-hmm. but the the idea is there we go Um, it talks about how the camels will be abandoned and through the Arabic language you would only understand what this really meant Mm. because if I told you in English that the camels will be abandoned Mm. with your cultural understanding of what a camel is you wouldn't really know but for Arabs the way they view camels was transport Mm
0: -hmm. it wasn't food
1: to them it wasn't uh, an animal in a zoo it was literally their mode of transport Mm. and you would only understand that through the lens of an Arab Or a Middle Eastern person Mm -hmm. Because they did that They transported themselves on camels So for them to Know in the Quran That it says that A camel will be abandoned They would understand That to mean That a new form of transport Would appear Or something would replace it But that can only be understood If it's said in Arabic Mm. Otherwise If you put it into English or Spanish Or whatever They might understand A camel To mean something else It might be for them Like I said a, a A thing of attraction True It might be something That they eat it might be something that they procure their medicines from. Mm-hmm. We don't know, yeah. and therefore languages have different implications on what we mean and understand from them.
2: As this is, reminds me one of the you know, hadith in which the Holy Prophet said that uh, the, one of the coming, uh, one of the sign of the of the of uh, of, uh, of uh, you know second coming of the Messiah is that when the she she camel will be abandoned, and we interpret it as that the, the new transport. Will you know? Uh, will develop and people will use train and cars and left the camera. Wow! Uh, so this is the one of the truthfulness, uh, the sign, sign of the truthfulness of the promised mm. Messiah, you're Messiah. right. Uh, and he, he, I think he, he, he mentioned in his books that you know, uh, this hadith and this the verse of the Holy Quran has, has already been fulfilled in my personality. Uh, then why you're not you know, uh, believing in me? So th- this is so, so much you know talk about the languages, and you know uh, the. the the, the the profound effect they have. For example, uh, you know, bilingual individuals often exhibit superior problem-solving uh, skills as uh, they approach challenges from different linguistic angles, yeah.
1: promoting innovation thinking. It's almost like you're able to think and solve a problem with a completely new, updated code yeah. from a, an angle that you previously wouldn't mm-hmm. have been able to do. I mean, these words give deeper meaning. I mean, <laughs> I think in Urdu there's a there's a word which dost, which means friend. Yeah. And it actually comes from Persian Which means uh-huh. Which means Your friend isn't just a friend Because in English Friend can just mean a friend yeah, yeah. In Arabic we know that A friend has many meanings as well mm-hmm. But Means Two of you mm-hmm. uh, okay. But you're your are two mm-hmm. But you're not actually two You're one Okay. Your Is a part of you it's And the, the meaning that this Infers in Urdu Is that your friends Are you You should treat them Like you're one person Now If you say this And you keep repeating To yourself that someone is your dost in Urdu eventually you will come with this understanding that I need to ah. treat them in a way that they are just like, like me, me and I am one of we are one and this is again it just changes the way you think about what a friend is
2: absolutely in the Arabic those uh, the, the friend is called siddiq, yes a one who you know who, who speaks truth so it's really explained that why uh, Who should you make friend Someone who
1: speaks the truth So that right. is why you know. In fact uh, in Arabic There's yeah. about 30 different ways To say the word friend Okay but There's those friends Who are close to you Like your sahib mm-hmm. It means somebody Who's really close, close to you, you Like a really deep friend mm-hmm. Now again Like I said in English For example We may not have this concept of A friend, Mm -hmm. and then what do we say for a friend who's really close or someone who? There might be some certain terms, but again, Mm -hmm. every language portrays it differently. And in English, there will be certain words as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure, and I'm not, I'm certain about this. Uh That, for example a lot of the Urdu language uses English terminology because yeah. it just doesn't have a, a replacement for it. True. And this is what I mean. Imagine if someone was Urdu or, or Arabic but they don't know English. Mm-hmm. They also wouldn't have a... They would be missing a code. Mm, they absolutely. would be missing a, a way of interpretation for, for the modern world. Mm-hmm. So being bilingual, it might not necessarily increase your brain cells mm-hmm. or immediately make you more smart, mm-hmm. but it gives you a platform to think differently, think more in broader horizons. And... Uh, after having this conversation with you, I think I can't value that more, uh, you know, any more than I, I I want to value that as much as I could now.
2: Absolutely, and I mean, there's a quite of various way to learn a new language. For example, uh, you know, uh, studies show that uh, 600 or 750 hours it takes to l- to learn you to learn a new language, not fluently, but the basic. And also, you can use platform like you know, um, Trilingo, or you know, you can have uh, uh, people. Uh, where you can have a talk with them and also reading books, taking professional lessons and stuff like that. You can... Learn new language. Wonderful,
1: and with that, we've come to the end of the drive time show today. We've had a blast, honestly, in the show, mm-hmm. and we must thank our producers, as well Zainab Fatima, Jamila Bryant, and Anila Tahir. Absolutely smashed it on the on the on the research here, and we will hope to see you guys again next time for the drive time show. That's tomorrow, Mondays to Fridays, four to six, live every single weekday. We'll be back for the drive time show on new topics. Until then, Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi Peace alaykum be upon you. Here's the news.